the hype video really does work because it, it just pulls people inside. And thank you for that. And uh, welcome to Chapel Street Church this morning. I'm Pastor Bruce McAvoy, and I'm responsible for a lot of what you hear about in Advent storytelling. So over the last few weeks, you've seen me on a, on a screen, but uh, I, I celebrate all that because I'm at your campus, and if you have questions about Serve the World and what you've been experiencing through the videos that you'll hear, uh, you'll watch a third one today, uh, find me back in the lobby. I would love to tell you more details about your impact through Serve the World and other local and global impact opportunities. The opportunity that you have this coming weekend is a local opportunity to invite your friends to Christmas Eve service. At 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock at this campus, we're doing that. We're celebrating Christmas Eve service in the afternoon at 2 and 4. It would be awesome if you registered. I mean, they love it when we do that. But let's be honest, you're, you're probably not. I mean, you're probably not. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bend you to do that. To, sometime today, just let us know if you're coming to this campus at 2 o'clock or 4 o'clock or... If, if you're going to be dirty and go to another campus, that's okay. But you should, do, you should let that campus know because we're, we're probably going to pirate some people from another campus because our times fit their lives. But if you're going to go to somebody else, you know, one of our other campuses, let them know that as well. I, I can't tell you anything more, but I'm going to invite my friend Chris up because he's got the really awesome announcement today. So I'm not even going to steal it from him, but please listen to the opportunity that Chris is going to share with you. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, So this is an interactive announcement. Raise your hand if you have ever had an amazing, wonderful day at work. Has anybody ever had a day like that where everything just works the way it's supposed to? You feel like you're doing the Okay. Now raise your hand if you've ever had a day that's just the opposite of that. Terrible day at work. Yeah, right. Somebody's like, yeah, two days ago. So we know that work can be beautiful. It can be something that's amazing, that's meaningful, it's part of our lives. But we also know that work often doesn't feel that way. And as disciples of Jesus, we might also ask, how do those ups and downs of work life connect with my life with God? Because sometimes it can feel like life with God is over here and life at work is over here. Uh, And we experience this longing where we know, like, "Ah, that doesn't seem right. It seems like somehow they should come together. So we're going to be running a course that's all about how does faith go to work? Um, it's called the Faith at Work course. We're going to be running it on Thursday nights at 6.30 p.m. starting January 11th for six weeks. Uh, it's super interactive. I'll be facilitating it personally, uh, but it's really also about you. What's your experience at work? Bringing your stories and your perspective so that we can learn from each other and learn from the Bible about how God redeems our experience of work. Because I believe that God is at work. He's at work in you, in your workplace, making it somewhere where you can become more like Jesus in your heart. And he's at work through you, letting you live out his mission in your work, regardless of what your work is. So if that's something that that strikes a chord with you, where you want to learn more and dig into that and figure out, how can I really be part of what God is doing in the world during my 9 to 5 or 5 to 9 or 9 to 7 or whatever it is for you? Uh, I encourage you to consider signing up. You can do that online at the website, chapelstreet.church slash faithatwork. And the at is spelled A-T, not the little symbol. Um, And you can also sign up with the QR code on your little event flyer today if that's easier for you. Um, I'll be in the back at the welcome uh, desk after the service if you want to just chat or have any questions. Uh, I would really encourage you to reflect on whether giving six Thursday nights to this would be helpful for you and whether there's somebody else that you might even invite to come along with you to the course. Uh, So thanks so much. Looking forward to learning and growing with all of you. Barbosa family, come on up here. One of our special traditions at Chapel Street is the lighting of the Advent candle. And when we have neighborhood campuses, we get to invite our neighbors and people from our church to be a part of our worship service. So I'm going to pass this microphone to a young lady that is going to start it off. You can go any. Yeah, here you go. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. um, So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who has said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no one, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. The third Advent candle is the shepherd's candle. As we light it, we're reminded of joy. There are times when joy comes as natural outpouring. We can't help but smile and laugh and get out the party hats. But other times, joy is something that we have to choose, something we hold in the same hand as sorrow. In these moments, we cling to defiant joy, the kind of joy that doesn't come because of our circumstances, but flies in the face of them. Mary chose the path of joyful obedience. This Advent, may the Spirit give us joy, the kind that comes from saying yes to him. Well, uh, during our services, what we try and do as a part of worship is pray together as a church family. We try and, try and do that regularly uh, because that is a part of what worship is. It's not merely singing together, uh, but turning our hearts, our eyes, our minds towards the Lord. Unfortunately, today I have kind of a bittersweet thing to pray about, uh, and it's uh, that our dear friend, Eric Robertson, who is the director of worship here at our campus, this is his second to last week with us uh, as our regular worship director. And that might come as a little bit of a surprise. For those who have been in the proximity of Eric, you know that's not a surprise because Eric is not only the director of worship at our campus, he's also the technical director for our entire church, all four campuses. So anything that has a circuit board or electricity running through it, it was his idea. He built it, he implemented it. Uh, and so he has a lot of, uh, of things on his hands that... Uh, Eric faithfully over the last couple of years since we opened this campus has served us whilst also trying to serve four other buildings. Uh, he's never complained about it. He's never made a fuss about it. He showed up and he's loved us. And more than that, uh, I, he did not want me to even come up here and talk about this. He doesn't like recognition at all, which is good. It's a humble guy, but it's right that we do it, Eric, because he has helped us build a worship ministry that really lifts up God here at this campus. He's made it clear to us in the songs that we've sung, in the way that he has conducted himself with his volunteers, in the way that he has been a part of our church family, he's made clear who Jesus really is and what he's about. And so I wanted to recognize him, I wanted to honor him. So would you join me in honoring Eric for all that he's done for our campus? Eric will not be leaving us. Uh, he, you will see him regularly here all the time, uh, just in a less on the stage playing. But I'm sure on occasion you'll come join us as well. Uh, the question might pop up in your mind, then who, who's going to be leading worship? And uh, we've got more to say about this and updates in the new year. But we have hired a new worship director who will be joining us in the new year, whose name is Luke Dugard. He's from Canada, so we're kind of continuing the international theme of <laughs> staff at North Aurora. Uh, but uh, again, we'll, we'll tell you much more about him. For now, I, again, I just want to pray together as a church family for Eric, that God would continue to use him and bless him. Uh, and Eric, I just want to say as the campus pastor, thank you, brother, for loving me, for loving this campus, uh, and for doing all that you've done. Let's pray together for Eric. Father God, thank you for our brother Eric. Lord, I thank you that I see so much of you in him, that because of your grace, because of your love towards him, Lord, we get to see more of you. And God, we just pray that you would continue to do great work in his heart, even as he transitions to more concentrated work on the technical side of things at our church. Lord, we know that so much of what we do wouldn't be possible without Eric's work. All the beautiful songs that we sing, the incredible sound experience that we have, the videos, Lord, all of it, all of these things that we take for granted possible only because Eric has worked and put so many hours into helping our church family be prepared for worship. And so, God, we pray that you would continue to do great things in him, that you would give him great encouragement as he steps into what's next, and, Lord, that we get to walk alongside him for a lot longer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship. 
When you ask how trafficking became a part of my life, its tentacles was digging deep into my life before I even realized what it was. There was nothing ingrained in me in my childhood for you're better than this or you're worthy. I never really knew about the worth of God and how God feels about his daughters. The way I understood sex as a teenager and as a young person is there's not a deeper meaning to it. We're just seeking outside of ourselves to fill a void. I had lost my virginity to a man who was much older than me, and then I started using drugs shortly thereafter, and it was my family's drugs. That was my crutch to use drugs for so long. It made me a target for traffickers. I was easily accessible. I had no self-worth. I had not a shred of self-esteem at all. It took me a long time to get to the point to where I was done, and then eventually I got arrested. I was one of the hopeless varieties that a lot of people said they probably would never get out, and I did. I see somebody who was in a lot of pain. What would you say to that girl now? I don't know. I would tell her there's hope. I went into a treatment facility on my own. And then shortly after, while I was in a program in downtown Chicago, I went into Naomi's house. Naomi's house is just so comfortable. It was definitely like a home that I had always dreamed of that never thought that I would have. Every woman in there just showed so much grace and was so welcoming. What I come from was complete hate constantly having to watch my back and I come into this house of women who just want to build me up and I can tell they're walking with the Lord. It showed me a way that was so foreign to me but was what God wanted for me all along. I would say when I came to Naomi's house my relationship with him got really strong. There's devotions in the morning. Every woman in there, the shift supervisors, have all been instrumental in my journey with Christ. I went back to school while I was still in Naomi's house. I was able to accumulate 22 credits while I was there. I got my certified recovery support specialist certificate. I was a case aide basically hung out with the clients and just like took them to lunch and dinner and I'm able to be an advocate for some of them. The way it makes me feel when I'm able to help other women is the most immense amount of joy I have ever felt. And I believe that I went through everything I went through so that I can come back and help people that are just like me. And because of Naomi's house, I get the opportunity to do that every day. How have I seen God working in my story? <laughs> Whew. God, he's so good. He's all over my story. He's everywhere. My whole story has just been tailor fit better than I could have ever imagined. That's been my whole like experience since I decided to surrender to him. Okay, oh, okay, I got it, all right. The year of the Lord's favor, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord, to comfort all who mourn and provide to those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. You're gonna have to give me a minute. I watched that video ahead of time because I knew this was going to happen and it did not help me. <clears throat> I, I, I tell you why I cry at that video. Uh, 
because that, that is a picture of, of who Jesus is. When you hear her words, when you hear her story, you're not just hearing Becky's story. You're hearing the story of who Jesus is for everyone, that that's what he desires for everyone. The same God that saw Becky and came for Becky and loved Becky is the same God that calls to all of us. And that's why when she reads that scripture from Isaiah at the end, that, that the Lord has sent me to proclaim good news. That's every Christmas when we get together, we're remembering the one who came to bring us hope and good news. Um, if, if you are kind of new with us or you haven't been jumping in with us all of Advent, um, what, the reason we are showing those videos is that a tradition here at Chapel Street every Christmas time is we like to choose one of our Serve the Well partners uh, and kind of have a generosity push, try to raise funds to help support what they're doing, what God's doing through them. Uh, and this year, what we decided to do is a little bit different is because we have so many Serve the Well partners is we decided to see how generous we could be to all of them. Uh, and to give an opportunity for all. And there's so many stories that we don't get the chance to share. Naomi's house is one of our partners, but that's just one amongst many different partners here in the United States and abroad where God is doing great work. And when you are generous to those projects, it is enabling them to continue to bring the kingdom of God further out into the world. And it gives opportunities even for those here at Chapel Street to be involved in things that are happening in our own neighborhoods, to be a part of what God's doing in our own neighborhoods. So I want to again thank you for your generosity. We have a goal of 300,000 this year. Uh, we're right now out about 70,000, so there's still plenty of time uh, for you to jump in and be a part of this. But I just want to pray that God would, as he always does, continue to shape our heart for the things that his heart beats for, that as a church... We wouldn't just kind of tell these stories and, and hold our thumbs up and say, isn't that great? But that we would be transformed as a people to become more and more like Becky and more and more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for these opportunities that you give us as a church family to join you and be a part of what you are doing in the world. Lord, so many other stories that we wouldn't have the time to get to uh, today, but God, we are grateful that uh, you are doing things that we couldn't even imagine. And even just thinking of, of Becky's own words in that video that she has a story now in her life that she couldn't even imagine, better than she ever imagined because of you. And so God, give us your heart. Let us be like you and help to make those stories happen. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this uh, Advent seat time, we are going through uh, the prologue of John, John chapter one, and we are looking at the story of Advent through a little bit of a different lens. We're not looking at the shepherds in the field. We are not looking at Mary and Joseph and the angel, but we are looking at the story at the beginning of time, how God himself, the one who created the heavens and the earth, stepped into our world. So I just want to read through John 1 one more time with you guys as we go through this. This is John 1, verses 1 through 14. Let's read this together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So many things that pop up in that little bit of scripture, but there are key words all throughout it that tell us who Jesus is. And we've been thinking about this question together as a church, who is the child born in the manger? And one of the things that John says about him is that he was life, that in him was life. When uh, Janine and I got married, I was very excited to plan our honeymoon because I had this is probably, no dude thinks about their honeymoon more than the wife, unless you called Andrew Griffiths, and then you think about it way more than your wife. And I was thinking, where could we go that will be, you know, just memorable, fantastic, outstanding, unbelievable? And I really wanted to do some kind of big thing. So we decided to go to Antigua uh, in the Caribbean. So I was really excited for this. We flew out the day after our wedding, and we get to stay at this, uh, this all-inclusive resort, 
where they kind of do everything for you, right? They had swimming pools with like mini bars in the middle. You could swim up and order food and get drinks and have all kinds of fun there. Every night you would go and there would be meals made for you. You didn't need to think about it. And I remember just kind of sitting on a, on a deck chair on the beach one day. I'm going, oh, this is the life, right? Knowing that I had about three days more and then it was going to be over forever. <laughs> But I thought this is life. Maybe you can think about another time in your life where you have, you've done something thrilling, the experience of it is amazing, and you think those very words, you think, oh, this is the life. Or maybe you've been in a really difficult stage of your life and you're thinking about things that you think would be life-giving to you. Well, one of the things that John says about Jesus is that he is the life. It's something that Jesus himself would go on to say many times in his own ministry, described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So when we ask ourselves what life really is, does it match up with what the Bible says about life? Does it match up with what Jesus says about himself? When I sat on that beach and I said, this is the life, is that what life is? Is that what it means to discover life? All of us are pursuing something for ourselves that we think will bring us life. Some idea of what it means to truly be living might be happiness, might be a career, might be the right standard of living, might be the right relationships. But all of us are pursuing something. We are building our life on some idea of what life is. And my question for you is, have you found true life? Have you found true life? We said there's a lot of bold claims in chapter one, but this is perhaps the one that is the most bold. John says this in in verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of men. And John even wraps up his whole gospel in John chapter 20. Once he's finished traveling through the entire story of who Jesus is, the cross, the resurrection, he says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What does that mean? It's pretty bold because what it means is if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. John's claim about Jesus being life is at the heart of what Christmas is about, and it means three things. It means he offers us a new birth, a new identity, and a new destiny. Let's talk about the new birth. Uh, This Christmas, we're kind of compiling all of the Christmas gifts for the kids. If you're parents, you kind of know how stressful this time is. It starts for us even before Thanksgiving. The kids, you know, they get the magazines delivered to the house with all the toys, the catalogs, things like that. And our kids immediately would just take it and just start ringing things up and going through them. And the, the gifts seem to get more elaborate. And I will confess, as a little bit of a, a nerd, I get a little jealous of our kids because the toys available to kids now are way cooler than any toy I had. In fact, now what they're doing is they're basically taking the same things that I had when I was a kid and making them cooler and then giving them to my kids. So I, I, like, I, this, this Christmas, one of the things they, they wanted a lot was Star Wars things, which I'm very proud of them for wanting Star Wars things. <laughs> But you can get these baby Yoda dolls now that are freakishly lifelike, where they, like, they feel like they have skin on them, they respond to you, so if you wave in front of them, they move around, they can walk around the house themselves, right? They, it's like a Roomba stuck up its butt or something so it can float all around. I don't know what it is, but it's extremely lifelike. It's, it's consentingly lifelike, to the point where sometimes if you kind of leave it on the shelf and you walk past, like you've ever been in Walmart and you walk past the doll and all of a sudden it just starts moving. It's unnerving, right? But we all know it's still just a doll, right? As, 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 as lifelike as it can appear, as lifelike as it can feel, it's not real. It's not real life. It's simulated life. It's pseudo life. And what the Bible really says is that actually there's something very much like that happening in the hearts of men and women who don't know Christ. That there is a pseudo life. There is an imitation of life, but it's not true life. It's not true life. John says that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world He was in the world, the world did not know him, and even his own people did not receive him. And that light was the life of men. So what John is telling us is that when the life stepped into creation, when the one who gave life to all things stepped into creation, we rejected it. We rejected life itself. Think about the seriousness of the claim that he's making there. But then John says this, he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came into the world to give new life through new birth. 
First song that we sang today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Now, John helps us understand this whole idea of new birth a few chapters later. In John chapter three, there's a conversation that happens that kind of take these verses, verses 12 and 13 from chapter one, that kind of blows them up a little bit for us. And it happens in the context of a conversation that Jesus has with a religious teacher called Nicodemus. It's a chapter that's very famous. In fact, probably the most famous Bible verse in the world happens in this chapter. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That happens right in the middle of this conversation with Nicodemus. But before that happens, there's this moment when, when Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, he comes to Jesus and he kind of starts complimenting him. He's come at night because he's a Pharisee. He doesn't want people to think bad of him and he doesn't quite know who this Jesus is yet. So he comes and he's having this conversation. He says, look, I, I, I believe that you're from God. I think that you're from God. No one could do the things that you could do if they went from God. And Jesus stops him right there, mid-compliment, and he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, before we get too far into this conversation, let me be really clear with you about why I came. I did not come to improve you. I did not come to give you really good advice and help you do a little bit better. I came because you're dead and you need to be made alive. I came because you do not have life. You need to be born again. And this, of course, the same way as it would to any of us, it troubles Nicodemus. He's like, I, well, what does this mean? What are, you, what are you really asking of me? And maybe there's been many times in your faith where you've been reading a Bible passage, you've been reflecting on something, and you feel a little bit like Nicodemus. What, is, what are you saying, Jesus? What does this really mean for me? It's completely radical what it means. What it means is this Pharisee, this Nicodemus, who's studied, who's intelligent, who's moral, who's upstanding, what it means is there is a problem that you have that you can't fix at all. There's something deep, deep, deep within you, Nicodemus, that needs to be resurrected, that needs to be brought to life, and you will never do it by your studying, your academics, your cleverness, your moral uprightness, none of those things. You need to be born again, an entirely new life. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people living. He came to bring true life to those who are stuck in an imitation. And this is really the dividing line of everything about who Jesus is. Either you have received him and you've received life, or you have not received him and you haven't received life. It's really, really bold. This is not kind of a nice, happy message that Jesus is bringing. It's a one of deep warning. You're dead, Nicodemus, and you need me to bring you to life. It's a message that God had been proclaiming all throughout the Old Testament. The entire story of God's people had been built around this idea that they need new life. And in fact, many times God would say things like this. In Ezekiel 36, he said, I give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That, that one verse occurs multiple times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's the theme of what God's trying to do in his people. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, he said this. He said that you are, apart from Christ, simply a statue. You're made of stone. You are a rigid image of your true self. But just as you need to be physically born, you need to be spiritually born. And that's why Jesus came into the world. So many of us spend stretches of our life asking God to improve us and to improve the life we have instead of asking him to make us alive. Instead of sitting down with the Lord and saying, the life I have apart from you is an imitation. God, I need you to make my life entirely new. Is that how you talk with God? Are you wrestling with God? Are you talking with God, asking him to make you new or simply to make you better? Have you accepted that life without Christ is simply an imitation? Have you acknowledged your stoniness and your need for flesh? Have you been born again? And I don't mean when I ask that phrase, I'm sure there's so many different ideas that come to your mind because born again is kind of just one of those religious, Christianized phrases that are out there. What born again means doesn't mean some kind of dramatic, emotional response to a religious message. 
To be born again means that you have seen yourself as in need of life. To be born again means to have seen that true life comes from one place only, and that's Christ. Have you found that life? Second thing that's offered in Jesus, if he is life, is that he brings us a new identity. A new identity. I am 100% one of those guys that will scroll for way too long on YouTube. This has come up many times in sermons, unfortunately. But I I keep doing it because it supplies me with such good material for sermons. But one of the things I love to watch most is adoption videos. There's kind of like a range of really emotional videos I like to watch. I'm an emotional guy like that. I love to watch when soldiers come home and see their families for the first time. I love to see kids doing really great things in performances for their parents. But I really love adoption stories. I love seeing videos of, of kids. And I watched one just a couple of weeks ago of two young boys that had been in the foster care system kind of looping around for months and months and months. And then the video was the story of, of two of their foster parents bringing them to court and saying, we want you to be our child. We want you to be our son. And the kid cries and is excited. The judge is crying. It's great. I'm crying. It's great. Why do I love videos like that, though? And why do we love videos like that? Because if you look at the views on videos like that, they're enormous. Why do we look at stories like that and become so emotional? It's because we know in that story is the story of a new identity being conferred, the story of a life that's being transformed. We know there's hope, there's joy, there's celebration when someone moves into becoming a child, a child that has the legal status of being a child. The Bible talks about adoption a lot. And that's really what's happening in John 1 in verses 12 and 13 when he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, new life means new identity. To be given the right to become children of God. Now, for a lot of you, perhaps this is a moment where you stop and you say, well, aren't we all children of God? What does that mean that he gives the right to become children of God? Well, The biblical answer to are we all children of God is no, we're not. Some of you might have saw the movie that came out recently, Oppenheimer, the story of Robert Oppenheimer and the kind of the the story of his life and how he developed the atomic bomb. And what it's often said about Oppenheimer is he was the father of the atomic bomb. Now, what's being said there is that he was the creator of it, right? There's not a familiar relationship between Oppenheimer and an inanimate object. It's saying he was the one who created it. So in that sense then, yes, God is the father of all mankind because he created man in his own image. However, we don't have the legal rights of children before God by default. Because what the Bible says is at the beginning of our story with God, we rejected him as father. We, we pushed back against the notion that he would, he would care for us, he would lead us, he would provide for us. We wanted to provide for ourselves. So in, in essence, we kind of emancipated ourselves from God. And what Jesus has come is to adopt us into his family, to give us that legal status, that rights and privileges of being his children, a new identity. It's extraordinary. Because there's only two ways to experience God in life. You either experience God as father or you experience God as judge. The only two ways that you can experience God. And for those who receive Christ, who welcome him, who believe in his name, you get to approach God as father. If you're not born again, if you don't receive Christ, you face God exclusively as judge. Now think about that. I can already, already feel the implications of that. Think about the difference between those two things. Imagine standing before a judge. He's examining you. You have to validate yourself before him. You have to prove yourself before him. You have to make a defense. And he is not looking at you with partiality. He's not looking to do you a favor. But think about a father. A child knows they can come right up to their father, jump up in his lap. One of my favorite things is when kids run up to me. Sometimes after church, I'm hanging out, I'm talking with people, and they run right up to me. They don't ask permission. Do you know why they do that? Because I'm their father. Because they know they are welcome in my presence. That They are my favorite people in the world. Pick them up anytime, no matter what I'm doing. That's what it means to be a child. That's what it means to have those rights, is to be able to approach your father, to be able to call out in the middle of the night in the dark and say, I need a, a cup of water or please come and talk to me. I've been afraid, right? Fathers get up and they go. 
parents get up and they go. To have the rights of a child means you have the right to approach God, to come near him, to rest in him, to ask for his care, to receive his approval and his affection. Now, as I explain that to you, it's obvious which kind of relationship is preferable. And yet, the truth is, we often actively avoid that identity. And in fact, we try and build other identities and approach God on the basis of those identities instead. We find our life in our possessions, our careers, our image, our achievements. Brian Coffey shared this at our preaching team this week, and it was too good not to steal for my own sermon. Uh, he raised the story of, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, Shohei Otani, who's a baseball player who just signed a deal with the LA Dodgers. Is this making sense to some people who care about these things? Yeah, okay. He originally brought it up is he just signed a deal with the LA Dodgers for $700 million over 10 years. 10 years, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. What the heck is going on there? But let me tell you something even more fascinating. For the Taylor Swift fans out there, she makes $700 million in a year. So she's doing better than Otani. How about Elon Musk though? Do you know how much, how much time it takes to, for him to earn $700 million? Less than 24 hours. So you got Otani, 700 million in 10 years. Taylor Swift, 700 million in one year. Elon Musk, 700 million in, in one day. But when they stand before God, what's Elon Musk gonna say to the judge? I built some rockets. I made a lot of money. It's not gonna matter on that day how fast you made your millions. Now compare that with Becky in that Save the Well video. Which identity matters more when you stand before God? The billionaire entrepreneur or the beloved daughter? I know which one I want. This happens all the time. We build ourselves on so many other things. Tim Keller, again, was, was telling a story about someone in his church who grew up in a very kind of conservative church, was built on being moral, being good, following the rules, doing all those things. She built her identity on that, but then she made mistakes and her identity fell apart. She had self-hatred. She couldn't believe that she couldn't measure up. So then she came up with another identity. She was very pretty. There was a lot of guys that were really into her. So she built her identity on being desired, being wanted. And she went from relationship to relationship because she knew what gave her worth and importance was being wanted by someone. But inevitably that failed her too. So she moves on to the next one. She got into some counsel and they said, well, you can be really independent. You can be self-sufficient. You don't need other people to validate you. So she got into a career and she built her identity on that. And soon she was facing bumps there because now she had to be successful to mean something. She found herself cheating and cutting corners so that she could do better in her job and she felt guilt and shame about that. So then she tried charity. She gave more and more away. She was generous. She said, well, maybe I can mean something because I do good things for other people. But then she realized she was only doing good things for other people so that she could feel better about herself and so that identity fell apart. Every single one of those things that she sought to find herself in ended up being devastating for her. They failed her at best and crushed her at worst. And it wasn't until someone shared the message of Christ that you can come and be adopted into his family through faith, through trust in him, and you can be seen as a child. Apart from the things that you do, you can have a certainty of value and worth apart from the circumstances of life. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what it means to have life abundantly. So not find yourself in shifting sands that move around, circumstances that change from day to day, but to find yourself in the one who loves you and gave himself for you. If you have received Christ into your life, God views you no differently than he views Jesus. Just pause for a second on that. For those that receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God which means that you are viewed no differently than Jesus himself if you're in Christ. It means that your Father in heaven loves you with all the passion and intensity with which he loves his own begotten son. He loves you more than you love yourself. He wants things for you that can't even imagine. And to be born into God's family is to live on the foundation of that identity. Where is your identity at this morning? Where do you find yourself? The last thing that 
Christ being the life means for us is that he brings with him a new destiny. A new destiny. C.S. Lewis, towards the end of his life, he wrote a letter to Mary Shelbourne, someone who was sick and was fearful of death. And this is what he wrote to her. He says, can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. And that last line has become kind of a particularly famous quote of Lewis. Better things ahead than any we leave behind. And it was born out of Lewis's belief that Christ not only gave him new life here, but he gives him a new destiny, that life is gonna increase in its beauty and its goodness and its intensity for the rest of all of time. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks of Mary at that moment and of us today, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That life in Christ will never end. When Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life, he doesn't simply mean he's gonna bring us back from death. That's what theologians would call resuscitation. There's many examples of resuscitation in the Bible when uh, a prophet of God or Jesus himself miraculously brings someone back from death. Lazarus himself in this story, God brings him back from death. However, Lazarus died again. So that's not resurrection. What resurrection means is to be brought to life and to never die. When Jesus was raised from the grave, he'll never die again. And what Jesus promises us is that when he raises us, when the resurrection comes for us, it doesn't just mean that we will avoid death. It means we will live in a way that we've never lived before. That we will experience life in a way that we never have before. It will be increasingly beautiful forever. To jump back to our good friend C.S. Lewis, he uh, finished his Narnia series with a book called The Last Battle. And in that story, the Pevensey children who you've kind of followed throughout Narnia, they go into a new country, a new Narnia that Aslan has created. And Lewis writes about it this way. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. I love a couple of things about this. C.S. Lewis is so good at using unicorns and fawns and these fantastical things to paint a really true picture of life. First thing is, I noticed in that is he says, every blade of grass looked as if it meant more in the new Narnia. The life of Christ is so full and complete, so beautiful and perfect that it will perfect everything it touches. Everything it touches with increasing measure for the rest of time. There's a day coming that Revelation tells us about in which those who are in Christ will enter into the fullness of life itself. That everything will be richer and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And it'll be a sense of being home at last to finally discover life for what it really is. But more than that, there's this part in that little passage I read to you where the unicorn says something really interesting. He says that the reason that he loved the old Narnia was because it sometimes looked like this, meaning the new Narnia, this new life that they've entered into. He realized everything I loved about my old life, I loved because it was an echo, it was a shadow of what I'm now experiencing in its fullness. And that is also a really deep theological truth. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Every goodness that you've ever experienced in this life is an echo of the life that's to be found in Christ. Maybe a silly way to see this, say this is that a lot of us right now are living on the free trial of life. And what God invites us to do in Christ is to subscribe to premium. The truth is, is that everything you've ever loved in this life, everything you've ever experienced in this life that you would call life is only life because it is an echo of what is to come in Christ. And Christ invites you to experience that in its fullness. 
That's why 1 John 5 says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So there's only one thing left to say. How do we get it? How do we get it? John says we need to receive him and believe in his name. Receive and believe. What does it mean to receive? Well, it doesn't mean intellectual agreement. It doesn't mean simply saying, okay, yes, I agree that Jesus is the son of God, that he probably came from God and that he did a lot of great things and he even rose again from the dead. That's not receiving him. Receiving means to welcome Christ into your life, to welcome his authority, his judgments, his provision, his commandments. Remember what Becky said at the start of our service in her video? She said that her story became better than she imagined once she surrendered to Christ. Once she welcomed his authority and his power and his goodness into her life. I love that story and I weep at that story because she discovered something that God longed for her from before the foundations of the earth. God wanted what Becky discovered in him, but it required that she receive him, that she welcome him. You can't let Jesus stay the child in the manger. He's got to go to the throne. He can't stay in the manger and just be a beautiful idea to look at. He has to be a king who rules and reigns in your life, who you welcome with all of your heart. It means you can't put him on the shelf. You can't have him just in one little corner of your life and Christianity is just some kind of background noise. It has to be the heartbeat that gives life to everything else that you do. Last thing though is you have to believe in his name. You don't just receive him, you've got to believe, you've got to put your faith in him because you cannot give yourself life. And here's what this means, and this is the best news of all. It means that to be born again has absolutely nothing to do with what you do and everything to do with what Jesus does. John says in this passage, born not of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man. So he's saying this birth doesn't come by your effort. It comes from God. Think about a normal birth. Who does the labor pains belong to in a normal birth? Every mother in the room is like, I know who they belong to. They don't belong to the baby, do they? They don't belong to the new life. They belong to the mother who's carried that child and who, through whose labor that child is born. The new birth is the same way. It doesn't come from our effort. It doesn't come from our labor. It comes from the labor of another. One of the parts of the Christmas story we tell ourselves every year is of the wise men that visit Jesus. And we all know their gifts, right? They bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's the best one to say. Well, they give, they give him gold because he's the king of kings. He's going to reign on high, gold for a king. They give him frankincense because it was a priestly incense. He's going to be the priest of priests who prays and does ministry. But why did they give him myrrh? Because he was going to have the death of deaths. Mare was anointment that you would put on people after death. So even those wise men knew right then at the beginning, even as the child lay in the manger, this child has come to carry a labor for all of us because his death will be our birth. Because when he gives his life, there will be new life for us. I said earlier, the child can't stay in the manger. Jesus can't stay in the manger. He must go to the throne. And he knew that the only way to that throne was through the cross. Jesus knew that his labor pains lie at the cross. He says in John 16, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come and when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And it's the same with God. Jesus knew that he would have to carry a labor. He stepped into the world to carry a labor of bringing us into new life. But for the joy set before him, we're told in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the labor pains because there was a joy for him, same way there is for every mother that lays eyes on that child. Christ descended into the darkness of our world for the joy set before him. You, you are the joy that was set before him. New life for you. Dear friends, this morning as you reflect on this child in the manger, who goes to a cross and who is destined for a throne, would you receive him? Would you welcome him in your life? Would you believe in his name and in the pains of his labor so that you might have new life? That is the invitation of Christmas and that's the invitation that Christ gives us today.
Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this chance to reflect on the beauty of your son as the life. In him was life, you tell us in the gospel of John, how true that is in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. You try and unpack it for us in Revelation and in letters throughout the New Testament and in prophecies of the Old Testament. And God, this morning, I pray that you would remind our hearts that your son is life. And everything else is an imitation, a cheap imitation. God, may we find ourselves in him. May we welcome him. And may we live in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you for joining us for worship today. We're so glad you could join us. If you are newer, we've got gifts for you at our welcome desk. We'd love to get to know you and hear a little bit about your story. Just want to remind you, next week for Christmas Eve services, we will not have a service at 10 a.m. It will be at 2 and 4 p.m. If you can, please register, unless you want to be daddy like Bruce said. Um, but that would be a real blessing for us just to be prepared, make sure we've got plenty of room. We do have a lot of guests uh, signing up, registering who are newer with us. And so we just want to make sure we've got plenty of room for everyone. Uh, you, I would love for you to invite people to join us as well. It's going to be a really special time reflecting on Christ's birth together. But for now, let me leave you with this benediction. May we go in the name of the one who is life. May we live in him. May we grow in him. And may the world know him through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.